we are breaking out of the mold, I think, of um, the stodgy all-male club. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. It's been a gradual thing, but I think this year's going to make a big impact. That's Senator Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia. When she first started her political career, she had three young children, and there were only a handful of women in jobs like hers. Senator Capito was a member of the bathroom committee when she was a member of the House, because not so long ago, there wasn't a women's bathroom convenient to the chamber where lawmakers vote. Now they have a changing table in there. We also touched on all the new women in Congress, how Democrats and Republicans can work together on issues like the opioid crisis, and why while there's a lot of new women around, there are so few Republican women. We're falling way short. And, you know, the Democrats are outshining us, no doubt, on that. I think it's something we need to really focus on. We're featuring my interview with Senator Capito in the lead-up to the Women Rule Summit in Washington on December 11th. That conversation in a minute on Women Rule, produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. This episode is brought to you by our supporting sponsor, Chevron. More role models to look up to, girls are more likely to pursue STEM education and careers. Role models can motivate young women to change the world through STEM. And Chevron is celebrating that. Thank the role model who inspired you at thankyourrolemodel.com. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. We are sitting here in your office. There's a lot of artwork around, photos in your desk. Tell us, uh, do you have a favorite? Well, actually, I do. Over my couch, I have a uh, needlepoint of the United States Senate uh, with some icons around it, the state of West Virginia, my initials. This was done by a very good friend of mine. It's needlepointed. It's an original. And uh, I just love it because it reminds me of my friends at home. But uh, I think it's a one of a kind. I love it. Well, women have won more seats in Congress than ever before. A record 102 women were elected in the midterms. You've said that you think women work better across the aisle with each other. Explain what you mean by that. Sure. I think women do work better across the aisle with one another. Um, We seem to be able to ask each other to join on bills together, uh, iron out differences when we have them in the bills, uh, talk, you know, one-on-one without, you know, getting raised voices or, or disagreeing to the point where you turn the other person off. Uh, and I think also we have here in the Senate, we have monthly dinners, bipartisan dinners where we join together and it's not supposed to be repeated or, you know, you're in a safe place. And we talk about things that most women talk about when they get together for a dinner or a night out and talk about our families or challenges that we're having. And then, of course, we talk about our fellow uh, senators. And <laughs> sure that could be interesting. it's interesting. It's interesting. But that just really, I think, um, smooths it more. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm certainly a relationship person. I've spent a lot of time doing uh, activities with a lot of women uh, myself. And it's a natural fit. What effect do you think having all these new women will have? You were a House member before you were a senator, so I think you can kind of speak to both chambers. You know, I've been really interested to read about the new set of women coming in, particularly on the House. They're younger. Mm. They're younger mothers. When I came in in 2000, I had children in school, 
And it was really, really difficult. Um, but I was one of uh, only six or seven that had children under 18. Now I think a lot more of these, uh, of these families and women in particular are coming in with younger children, and it presents a real challenge because the schedule's challenging, the uncertainty uh, is challenging, and sometimes the inflexibility of, you know, you have to be there. And, and so I think that's a real challenge for them. I'm, I'm going to uh, enjoy watching. I was on the bathroom committee for the um, <laughs> in the house to get the bathroom next to the. This was a chamber. big deal. This was a big deal. I was very proud that it was under Speaker Boehner's mm-hmm. speakership that we were able to do this, and we had a little bipartisan committee to find out what the needs are. Well, they've expanded some of those needs. I said now they have a changing table in there, so I think it's we are breaking out of the mold. I think of um, the stodgy. Uh, male all male club and it's been a gradual thing but i think this year's going to make a big impact yeah so for those our listeners who don't know in the house there was a men's bathroom right off the floor so when you were voting right. late at night or you you had to be there for votes there was nowhere for women to go to the bathroom and so uh well there yeah, I mean, you had to walk, walk down the hall and yeah. and it was sometimes inconvenient so as a as an equity issue uh we said we want one as as conveniently located as the men so many of the women who were elected this cycle were Democrats. Democrats. The number of GOP women has increased, but not nearly as much. Why do you think that is? What what can be done to maybe change that? Well, I say I will say the one woman that uh, was uh, the new Republican, which is only one, which is uh, not the best number wise, but she's Carol Miller from my state of West Virginia. So now two out of the five of us are women, uh, and I'm very proud of that fact. Uh, this is something that stumps me. I I don't understand. We have a lot of Republican women that have local offices. They have their commissioners. They're active in their states, uh, and and at all levels on the political spectrum. But we are in our numbers are not. We're falling way short of uh, and and you know the Democrats are outshining us, no doubt on that. Uh, I don't know what it is. I think it's something we need to really focus on. Uh, I have a a program that I try to inspire young girls, but it's, it's an apolitical, you know, I don't care what party you're in, just let's have more, let's have more participation. I, I don't know. I don't know if there's still not of enough of us to sort of mentor the, the campaign people through their campaigns to get more and more, but we're definitely well aware of it <laughs> and focusing on it. Uh, let's talk about your home state. Uh, Kara Miller actually is going to be at our women rule summit, December 11th. So we're very excited uh, to have her, but, do you think Democrats are, are they done in West Virginia? I mean, what's happening there? Well, we had an interesting, we've had an interesting phenomenon um, party-wise in my state since I began. I began in 2000. I was the first Republican elected in over 20 years. Um, I'm the first Republican senator since the 50s. And I was the only one to be reelected as a Republican uh, and the person before that was my father in the 50s and 60s. But that now, from 2000 on, in 2010, uh, David McKinley joined. And now, except for Joe Manchin, it's all Republican. And the governor actually changed from a Democrat to a Republican. I think the National Democrat Party uh, it does not match up with our West Virginia Democrats. That's why you see Republicans winning. I think also um, the old-style yellow dog Democrat, mm-hmm. uh, union kind of working man Democrat, is now a Republican or voting Republican. Uh, and you saw that in Trump's numbers. And I think that Joe Manchin, uh, my fellow senator, survived by a, a narrow margin. 
but uh, still survived nonetheless in a state that went overwhelmingly for Trump. And he came in, the president came in three times for uh, Joe's opponent. So I th- Joe's sort of the last man standing in his party, and you can see how conservative he is in his in his voting record and in his his uh, rhetoric. So I don't think the Democrat Party's done because there's still lots of infrastructure there uh, that uh, that shows that uh, the Democrats still. I mean, registration wise, it's still overwhelmingly Democrat. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting shift, mm-hmm. though, that you've definitely seen. Talk about your state has been really the hardest hit in the opioid crisis. Uh, you changed your mind on needle exchange programs. What changed your mind on that? You know, the needle exchange program is interesting. Uh, I, I try to use that as an example of um, how people like me in positions of, of decision-making need to try to be open-minded to change and change your ideas. Initially, I thought, no way, it's just going to be needles, needles everywhere. And um, and then public health officials and others came in and said, you know, characterize it as harm reduction. And if you are coming in to exchange a needle, then you're not in some abandoned home shooting up a dirty needle and sharing it with other people where you could get HIV or hepatitis. And it also gives you a touch with the public health system. On that, I'm going to have to add an asterisk because in my hometown of Charleston, West Virginia, we had a needle exchange program that got way out of control. And the mayor shut it down because the controls were not there to have a one-on-one exchange. They weren't sure. They were just giving, like, if you came in with a needle, you could leave with 40 needles. And, and the police officers, our police chief, were saying, this is dangerous for our people. So you have to do it right. Um, and there are other needle exchange programs that are that are going on in Charleston through our, our public health clinic, but also in Huntington. So we, we there are areas on a needle exchange um, program that need to be reined in. Is this something that you think Democrats and Republicans can, should, will be able to work together on? Are you hopeful, you know, in terms of next Congress, things like that, that, that you're working on? Absolutely. I mean, we saw, we passed a major uh, opioid uh, bill um, to deal with the problem. Bipartisan 70 senators weighed in on it. Uh, it. It came from best practices. I worked with Sherrod Brown on some issues. I worked with Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, both Democrats, uh, Gene Shaheen, because we have some similar types of uh, problems. But um, So I definitely think it's a bipartisan thing. It's a very big tragedy and very, very sad. Let's talk a little bit about infrastructure. Okay. Uh, what are you hoping to accomplish? Do you think that seems to be one of the things that both Democrats and Republicans say, maybe next Congress, that that, that could be the thing that gets done? Again, I think it is very bipartisan. We passed a water infrastructure bill that's bipartisan, you know, waterways and, and um, ports and those kinds of things. Big money and uh, big for commerce, but also for um travel and and uh, recreation. So that's important in a state. We have a lot of rivers and a lot of bridges, so that's important for us. But infrastructure to me is a uniting uh, issue, whether it's roads or airports and also broadband. That's a part of infrastructure, particularly in rural America, that's fallen short. And I've worked on, again, with Kirsten Gillibrand and, and others to um, others on the other side of the aisle to try to get more rural broadband into these areas. I, you know, when you go back and look at President Trump's first two years, I wonder why we didn't try to do that first as a unifying issue. Um, we obviously went to repealing and replacing uh, Obamacare, which uh, failed, 
And I think that then we went to tax reform, which passed, and, and maybe the failure of the health bill helped the tax bill pass. But at the same time, uh, I think if you can hit a unifying uh, message at the beginning, of course, the big stumbling point is how do you pay for it? But I think the American people are willing to pay a little bit more to have better roads, to have um, to have better access in air travel and rail and transit for those areas that is important. And now, a message from Chevron. While women make up 50% of the workforce, they hold about 25% of STEM jobs. Getting young women interested in STEM today is the first step to a more diverse workforce tomorrow. Role models are cited as one of the most effective ways of engaging young women in STEM. With a little motivation and inspiration, we can create change for the future. Chevron is celebrating role models and the part they play in inspiring young women. Thank the role model who inspired you at thankyourrolemodel.com. So let's go back in time a little bit. You mentioned your father uh, was the governor of West Virginia. Uh, you've been around politics for a long time. Did you always want to go into it? Did you hate it because your parents were, your, you know, your father was in it? You know, I was always really interested in in the issues of the day. As a young girl, I have some pictures behind me of of my dad and I standing at Longworth, and then there's one with my brother and my mom and I and my dad standing in front of the Capitol taking pictures. So he always made us a part, both of them, of, of his life as a public servant. We would come to the Capitol here or when he was governor. We were always a part of the campaign. Uh, you know, when you get to be a teenager, no, who wants to do anything? So, I, <laughs> you know, I always sort of wanted to go. Uh, and, but it was never something that I really aspired to, uh, not until I became an adult and our children were growing up a little bit more. And I was looking at the local landscape, political landscape. Did I say to myself, I can, I can do this. This is something that really interests me. And so I think what my, what my parents through their public service, I was already sort of knew what a campaign was going to be like. My father had a very, up and down career, lots of um, difficult times and great times. So I already sort of had that shell that you have to have. You really have to have that or it can eat you alive. So I got a lot of advantages because of that. So most women say, I think the statistics are, they have to be asked several times to run before they actually run. Did somebody ask you or did you say, I'm going to do this? My first office was West Virginia House of Delegates. I lived in the same town. I lived in the capital city, Charleston. Uh, It's a 60-day basic commitment. So at the time, I was a stay-at-home mother with three very active kids. And I thought, this is a good way to step into this. So I was at the grocery store one day. I ran into a friend, actually the friend of mine who did this needlepoint. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about running for the House of Delegates. And she said to me, you've been talking about this for four years. Why don't you just do it? (laughs) And, you know, I hadn't realized that I'd been talking about it as long as I had. And I think the challenge of that from her was like, yeah, Shelly, just do it. So I did. So nobody asked me. I I did it on my own. The other big hurdle that we talk a lot about in this podcast is raising money, whether it's for an entrepreneur as a woman or whether it's as a campaign, you know, kind of having to make that ask. Do you have any advice for women out there that are, you know, going to have to do dial for dollars? You know, I would have to say, even to this day, being in this as long as I have, it's the it's the the most I mean, it gets gives me a pit in my stomach. I just really do not like to call and ask people for money. Half the time I call, I never really get to the ask. Mm-hmm. I'd be a terrible salesman, I think. <laughs> but I do, uh, 
it's important. And I think money shows strength, whether that's good or bad, it just does. And it turns the, the first time I ran for Congress, a couple friends of mine, we went to people that we know, you go to the people that you know, if you're involved in your community, if you've raised money for the YWCA or for the art center or uh, for the PTA or, you know, any kind of money raising is, it's the same theory. And you just have to go back to where you know. And and that's what I did. And I, I actually got off to a good start the first quarter that I raised money. And that really helped me here in Washington in terms of getting attention that, hey, a Republican can win in West Virginia. And she's serious. And she's able to... Um, you know, bank some money and not spend it. So it is a difficult part of the job. I don't think it's any harder for women than for men. I think it's just, um, it's, you know, it's just something you got to do. It does get easier. Obviously incumbency makes that, uh, <laughs> makes that a little bit easier. You talked about kind of having that tough shell. Your, your father, he had an up and down career. He went to prison uh, for corruption. Did that ever make you think like, I don't want to, I'm just not going to be in the limelight like that? You know, um, those were difficult times for our family. It was very uh, tough for us, uh, for me as a mother, because I had children in an elementary school. I ask my kids now to this day, you know, were you getting grief at school? Because, of course, they wouldn't tell me at the time because it was just ripping everybody up uh, from a personal standpoint. And the older one definitely was um, hiding, I think, some of the things that were happening. He was in sixth or seventh grade. But, you know, the way – I always took it away, the way my parents dealt with all of that. And my father remained very positive about his country, his public service, his ability to make changes and how important it is for people to get involved. And I took my cue off of that. When I first ran in 1996, which was just three years off of off of the, uh, the incidences, people said, you're just getting revenge. This is just – you're just trying to um, – Re, uh, reignite the name, the Moore name, my dad's Archmore. And, you know, at the time I really rejected that. But when I look back on it now, I think that was some of my motivation. I, I, I felt like my dad had had a good, good service. And today we get stories every day of all the great things that he did. Uh, and I felt like we're good people. <laughs> and, and I'm going to go out and prove that, you know, this is, this is still a part of how we care about our state in particular. I want to talk about you, your kids. So when you come to the house, you still had kids in school. Obviously, there's a lot of, as you said, kind of women now that are going to be coming to office with young kids that are going to be commuting. How did you approach balancing that kind of work life? If there is a balance, but how did you at least approach it? You know, women every day have this challenge. Um, I have two daughters-in-law and a daughter. They all have children. And when one of the children gets sick, something happens, you know, somebody has to stay or somebody has to make an adjustment. And it, you know, a lot of times it can come with somebody starting to throw up at five in the morning and you're like, what are we going to do? And, uh, and so these are adjustments that I think are difficult for everybody. It was particularly difficult. I think in this job, it's particularly difficult because you're away. Most families stay at home. Our family stayed at home. So for me, having my husband being just an incredible support system, I remember our daughter who was probably in seventh grade, she called me, here I am like almost 400 miles away, where are my soccer shoes? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, you're going to have to get your dad home and he's going to have to find them for you. 
of course, what does he say? Play in your tennis shoes. Too bad. <laughs> but um, so I think we all made adjustments. Of uh, But the, that was the hardest part of it. I was miserable. We had kids that uh, very active in sports. Uh, our one son was playing for the state basketball championship. I had to miss one of the games. That was the hardest part for me. Uh, and But he kept the steady ship at home retrospectively, you know, we all did fine and maybe grew a lot during the process, but I think it's hardest on the member. Um, Martha Roby's a good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. She has two small children and she, I remember the first year we got, I think January, the July 4th recess, for some reason it got taken away from us or something. I mean, she was just in a basket and I felt so sorry for her. And now she's helping other young women Mm -hmm. try to manage it right uh one of the things you did when you first came to the senate you i think kind of alluded to was a starter program called west virginia girls rise up tell us a little bit about the effort and what the kind of idea behind it is well for me i want to see young women in west virginia aspire to a lot of things but i want to see them aspire to public service and again going back to my dad's legacy for his children and for young people in the state he had a lot of people that he talked with high school graduations or Cub Scout or Boy State and, and really inspired young men to public service. And I thought that is something I could do that's different, being the first woman that I really wanted to focus on. Uh, I, I, would, I would like for somebody to come up to my daughter someday and say, you know, your mom came to my class and, and now I'm the president of the United States. But, <laughs> but so, so we picked, I picked... Um, Fifth grade girls is the time. Having been a mother and now grandmother, I can see I didn't want to avoid middle school. <laughs> I don't have such fond memories of that for myself. Mm-hmm. And, and I also wanted, and so we, we set up West Virginia Girls Rise Up. We go to the schools, the fifth grade, talk to the girls about um, education, physical well-being, because that's important to me, and I think it's important to success, and then confidence, which is the really hard one. And we, we've taken the West Virginia University gymnastics team with us. We took an astronaut with us. And we've been around to, and and the kids love it. The teachers love it. And then we challenge them to say, what am I going to do to be better? And it could be out of those three categories. I'm going to walk the dog for my mother. I'm going to mentor somebody at church. I'm going to volunteer and help another student. And, and so it's been very, very positive. And I, I, I'm proud of the program that we put together. I didn't do it all on my own. It was sort of my idea and the, and they've run with it and we've perfected it. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Our show was produced by Jenny Ament. Our booker is Jessica Andrews. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.